0: As we step into this, um, I just want to let you know that as, as we study and we approach this, I'm approaching it with as much nuance and thoughtfulness as possible, but it's tough. Jesus is cutting at one of the most deep parts of our soul. It touches on who we are as human beings and he has a lot to say about it. Up until this point in the Sermon on the Mount, he has radically transformed our ideas of what it looks like to be human. For Jesus, Sermon on the Mount is his description of what it looks like to be in the upside down kingdom of God. We read from the Beatitudes and reflected on Jesus' redefinition of what it means to be blessed. To be blessed is to be broken by the world or to advocate on behalf of the broken. Jesus says, For blessed are those who are poor in spirit. He says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Then we go into uh, Jesus' calling of his followers. And him calling them salt and light, this metaphor that means that it is our task as followers of Jesus to display his light and his flavor to the world. That's to say, to show God's goodness in the community we call church. Then he goes on to say that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. This is to say that what we call the Old Testament which is roughly two-thirds of this book we call the Bible, is not to be done away with in Jesus, but rather that Jesus affirms and extends the commandments. And last week, we learned more about what he means by affirming and extending as we reflected on Jesus's commands about anger and murder, in particular, that Jesus is calling us to take a look at the posture of our heart. Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not commit murder, but I tell you that if you have anger in your heart, if you harbor contempt against a brother or a sister, you have already committed the act. Likewise, today's passage is similar in which he affirms a command that was set before and then he tries to embed it upon the heart of his followers. Jesus affirms that we should not commit adultery, but then he extends it to demand a new conversation on sex and sexual desires. And at this point, I think it's worth noting that we have people at different spots on their spiritual journey. So some of you would say, I am a full-blown follower of Christ. I'm committed to following his ways and submitting myself to his commands. I say, welcome. We have some people who are unpacking the baggage of the past. There may be in a season of what they would describe as deconstruction and they're figuring out where do I land with Christ and with the church? And then we've got people who just are trying to figure out what they think about Jesus. And to those I say, welcome to an internal conversation. For Jesus's directives in this passage are to his disciples and his disciples explicitly. That's to say, I think maybe the church of the West in the past has made the mistake of taking Jesus's sexual ethic and applying it to everything. Jesus's sexual ethic is for his followers. And so we have to thoughtfully reflect on what it means for us as followers of Jesus but that we also don't create a new command for people who don't acknowledge Jesus as Lord. This is an internal conversation. And so if you say, I'm, I'm at a place where I'm not sure where I'm at with Jesus, your invitation is to listen into a family conversation. Listen into what Jesus has to say specifically about sexual objectification. Now, Jesus is, um, this is one of his most harsh moments, and in part because he has such an issue with sexual objectification and the oppression of women. However, as we try to follow Jesus in this moment, we recognize that we live in a moment in which sexual objectification is all around us. In a New York Times op-ed that I read this week called, Will We Ever Figure Out How to Talk to Boys About Sex?, Peggy Orenstein talks about this moment where she was leading a discussion group with a group of teenage boys. I'm sure in that moment there was probably some giggling, some goofiness, but the boys got serious all of a sudden and one boy raises his hand and asks, "Can you have sex without feelings?" The group responded affirmatively and leaned in eager for her response. Our culture is moving towards a view of sex that promotes emotional detachment and self-gratification in our sexuality. Since the 1960s, there has been a persistent myth that one's sexual life affects no one else. But the joke is, if you know how sex works, that is not possible to do. It's laughable, it's a laughable myth if it wasn't so destructive. The myth goes that my sexuality is my business and my business alone. It affects no one else. It develops this transactional understanding of sex that if I can get what I want, it doesn't matter where I get it or who I use in order to get it. Whatever we need from wherever we need it, and that's the end of it. Helen Lewis in a piece for The Atlantic called The Problem with Being Cool with Sex Writes that our enlightened values, less stigma regarding unwed mothers, the acceptance of homosexuality, greater economic freedom for women, the availability of contraception, the embrace of consent culture haven't translated into anything like a paradise of guilt-free fun. While well, many of the things she mentions here are positive movements in society, none of this creates a reality in which we can freely engage in sexuality without experiencing guilt. And this high schooler's question hits at the core of who we are as humans. This high schooler's question, can we have sex without feelings? Is the question, is the narrative that we are being told by music by social media, TV, movies, and pornography actually true? Can we use one another without guilt, without shame, without the complexities of human connection? Is a life of unrestricted sexual pleasure all it's cracked up to be? And this is the question at the heart of this high schooler's question. Is a life of unrestricted sexual pleasure all it is cracked up to be. Now, this is not a new phenomenon. It is not a new thing to talk about sexual objectification and oppression in particular. For a contemporary of Jesus, written from the sec- second century, named Alusa Galusa, that's a real pronunciation of his name, Alusa Galusa, a second century writer, writes, If you should take your wife in adultery, you may, with immunity, put her to death without trial. So if she cheats on you, you can kill her without trial. But if you should commit adultery or indecency, she must not presume to lay a finger on you, nor does the law allow it. If you cheat on her, she can do nothing. And this objectification of others and the oppression of women specifically is the moment Jesus is speaking into, that he is speaking into a culture that used women for their bodies and nothing else, and the men got away with whatever they wanted with complete immunity. And so Jesus is speaking into this moment, speaking into it and calling to account those who would be his followers. Jesus offers us a redefined definition of adultery as sexual objectification. This is to say, adultery traditionally is sexual relations with someone other than one's spouse. And Jesus is taking issue with a prevalent interpretation of his day. So, Ten Commandments, number seven do not commit adultery. What is being done at this moment, about three centuries prior to Jesus, a well-known rabbi stepped on to the scene and really narrowly defined what adultery was. He, He constricted it as much as possible. And for the sake of convenience, everybody was like, cool, sounds good to me. As narrow a possible definition of this as possible. And so Jesus is taking issue with that narrowing And he actually extends it to the posture and the place of our heart. He's saying that we are capable of committing acts of adultery or sexual objectifications in our heart and in our imagination. Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in her heart, in his heart. We all know well enough that this cannot be written off as simply a male problem, but this is the culture in which Jesus is speaking to. And what he is speaking to specifically is the look. And I'm not talking about you're looking down, you look up, and you notice an attractive person. That is a biological impulse, to notice an attractive person. It is what you do next that Jesus is speaking of. It's what you do to take a second look. It's what you do to stare a little bit longer. It's what you do to trace that person's outline and play a movie over in your head. Jesus is speaking to reducing a human made in the image of God to an object for your sexual gratification. Again, this is not the noting or the noticing of someone beautiful or attractive or good looking or in great shape. This is not the noticing. It's what you do next with that information that Jesus cares so much about. Martin Luther has this brilliant way of talking about it. He says, I cannot keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can certainly keep it from nesting in my hair or for biting off my nose. Jesus is speaking of what do you do when you've noticed that person? Because what Jesus is attacking is a root issue in each of our heart that longs for intimacy, that longs for connection, but we wrongfully place it into the bucket of sexual objectification and sexual fantasies. In a modest culture in which women likely wore full dress, not much skin was showing, Jesus is laying the root of sexual objectification at the feet of the perpetrator alone. What Jesus isn't making room for is, well, if they were wearing less, it's, he's not making any room for that. It lays at the feet of those who are making the, object, the objectification, who are making the observation. He lays the problem at the feet of the perpetrator. For Jesus is teaching that a person who cultivates this lustful gaze will not be at home in the goodness of his kingdom. Scott McKnight helpfully places Jesus' instructions within the whole of Scripture's instructions on sexual desire. For what Jesus sabotages here is not sexual desire, but rightful desire spent wrongfully. So this is to say that it is a misconception to think of Jesus as anti-sex. Buckle up. All of Jesus's theology comes from the Hebrew Bible, where we learn that Jesus calls creation very good. The human body, sexual desire, sex, marriage, intimacy, are called a very good thing. Jesus is not taking issue with sexuality because as human beings, we are sexual creatures. He designed things that way. But what he's taking issue with is taking that good desire and bending it towards our own ends and our own self-gratification. The Bible is decisively pro-sex, I know that's weird to say, and you probably haven't heard that often, but the Bible is for human sexuality. It is a distortion of both the Bible and Christianity that says spirit good, body bad. You've likely been in a church where you were shamed for having a body, that everything is about the spirit and nothing to do with your body. The Bible decisively says We are very good, and we are not to be shamed for the things we are experiencing, the feelings we have, but rather we are to learn to discipline those things, to put them into their proper place. It is an unfortunate distortion of the biblical text that makes it or Christianity anti sex Um, In fact, there is a whole book of scripture that celebrates two lovers and their pursuit of one another's body within covenant relationship, called Song of Solomon. It is not PG. Let me tell you, (laughs) anybody who opens it up and tries to like make it about God—that is one. That's a really weird interpretation. And second, it is very clearly about two lovers exploring one another's body in covenant relationship. If you read it, you will know that that is the case. And any, disto- like any other interpretation of it is just, frankly, a dishonest one. And one of the last stanzas of this, dare I say, erotic poetry is this, For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love with all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly destroyed. Notice something very profound about the way this passage talks about sexual desire, that it acknowledges the deep complexities of human sexuality. The human sexuality is not something simple. If you've been living for any amount of time, you know that there at times is a storm raging in our own gut. There is a storm raging when we talk about these things. It is not a simple subject, it is very complex. And the author compares sexual desire to a fire, which is a complex energy. That is to say, if I were holding fire up here, if I were holding a candle and I asked, is this good or is this bad? I would quickly get answers all over the spectrum. Well, yes, it's good, but then it can also be bad. Like it depends on the context. It quickly becomes clear that fire is neither good nor bad, it is complex. Fire heats our homes, our apartments. It warms up our food, it propels our vehicles but it also burns. It destroys homes, neighborhoods, and lives. Fire is neither good nor bad. It is very complex. Applied with discipline and wisdom, fire can prove to be an incredible tool for human flourishing and productivity. But applied irresponsibly, foolishly, or maliciously, fire has an immense capacity to damage. Likewise, our sexuality is a complex energy. Our sexual desire can lead us towards God's beauty, character, and human intimacy, but sexual desire has an immense capacity for harm. It can scar the soul, it can destroy relationships, and it can leave trauma unlike anything else. We know this in the psychological field, that sexual trauma, some of the deepest wounds on the human soul. That sexuality in our our desires as human beings are complex. To paint in broad brushes, to call them good or to call them bad is the wrong question altogether. It is about how we are channeling, how we are using those things. And I believe this is why God's intent for sexuality was designed to be expressed within the boundaries of a marriage covenant. This is to say that there, within the bounds of covenant relationship, there is safety, there is commitment, there's this ability for it to be channeled in wisdom, in love, and in commitment. For in covenant relationship, love flourishes. So our desire for sexuality needs to be channeled, disciplined, and I believe the best way to do that is in the context of marriage. This quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer always moves me. He's marrying a young couple, and he says to them, today you are young and very much in love. You think that love will sustain your marriage. Well, I give you the opposite advice. Let marriage sustain your love. This is to say marriage is the soil in which love can grow and flourish. And I would say that marriage is also the soil in which our sexuality can flourish. That is to say that there is something about two trusting individuals giving themselves fully to one another. Now, I recognize that not everyone in this room is married. And so I think it is important to acknowledge that for those unwed by choice or by circumstance, know that a commitment to chastity or abstinence is sacred. So much so that Jesus undertook the same task for himself. Prior to Jesus in Jewish theology, singleness was actually a great source of shame. And Jesus enters the scene, taking the task upon himself, And redeems it. And while there is much more than just disciplining one's sexual desire that goes into a life of chastity, that is not a small part of it. A life of chastity or a season of abstinence is a practice in reverence and patience and respect. It is wisdom to acknowledge that everything, including our sexual desires, has a season. And one of the reasons Jesus puts so much emphasis and instructions into this moment is because he recognizes what capacity sexual desire has both for human flourishing and for destruction. We've read this passage several times, but in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, a lawyer asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And you've heard it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus condemns the look of sexual objectification because it, it, it violates this command. It dehumanizes an image bearer of God, someone meant to be cherished and respected, turning them into kindling for our sexual fantasy. Jesus's instruction is that his followers deal with sexual objectification swiftly and decisively. Our king will go on to say, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members' then your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. On the surface, this command to pluck out one's eye or to cut off one's hand is extreme. Only the most zealous of us could even begin to follow But if Jesus means this literally, I think he's missing the most obvious appendage to start with. You might get that a little bit later. But if Jesus is meaning this literally, he's starting in the wrong spaces. I think Jesus is calling for decisive action to address the roots of sexual objectification in our own heart and life our lustful eyes, the images we entertain, or the content or art that we engage with. Now, this is not to create another group of man-made laws, for each of our temperaments is very different. So I will not, and I will not go on to tell you, here are the shows that are Alex approved. <laughs> I won't even begin to mention names, because What might be something that tempts me might not be the same thing that tempts you. And art is this gray area in which we acknowledge that the body is good and that the human form was created by God. And so art is a little bit of a gray area in which the artist reflects the creative nature of God. But... To quote a Supreme Court judge, I know pornography when I see it. And so the question that some of us will need to grapple with is what does the content that I engage with do to my heart? What is it doing in my soul? If your eye causes you to sin, don't look. If your hand causes you to sin, don't do it. John Stott offers a helpful commentary. He says, to obey this command of Jesus will involve, for many of us, a certain maiming. We shall have to eliminate from our lives certain things which, though some of them may be innocent in themselves, either are or easily could become sources of temptation. In his own metaphorical language, we may find ourselves without eyes, hands, or feet. That is we shall deliberately decline to read certain literature, see certain films, visit certain exhibitions. If we do this, we shall be regarded by some of our contemporaries as narrow-minded, untaught Philistines. You haven't seen such and such film, you haven't watched that on Netflix. We may have to become culturally maimed in order to preserve our purity of mind. The only question is whether for the sake of this gain, we are willing to bear that loss and endure that ridicule. Again, the goal of this is not to create more legalism. The goal of this is not to create a category in which we all buy into angel vid and we're all watching these really overly edited movies The goal is not to create a new legalism, but to say, what are you fostering in your heart? Jesus's main objective is the the surrounding of your heart and the posture of your heart. He begins pointing to the place of our will and our imagination and saying, what is going on there? And how is it being affected by the things we engage with? But again, Jesus's point is not to create new legalism. I cannot emphasize that enough. Because we all know that just because you enforce a lot of new rules does not necessarily mean your heart has been renovated and become a place of love and goodness. There are plenty of countries across the globe who women are clothed from head to toe and that does not mean that the men have a heart for the goodness of God or towards a loving posture towards their neighbor. Rules alone do not shape the heart, but they do a lot. And so this is to say, let us reflect on the root, the things that we are engaging with. Finally, I, I wanna leave with a word of encouragement and I'll have the band join me back on the stage. A lesson like this could lead to a significant amount of anxiety or legalism. And I recognize that and I'm cautious about that. This isn't designed to be a new case for legalism. Jesus did not come to to tell all the Pharisees, here are my new set of rules to add to all the things that you're doing. Rather, this is Jesus striking at the heart of an issue and saying, what are you doing to cultivate a heart of righteousness, one of love for God and love for neighbor? So as we hear this, as we hear Jesus' words, let us remember his words from the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful, merciful both to themselves and to those around them. At work in this passage is a spectrum of sexual objectification. This is to say that Jesus is not talking about the accidental moment. Jesus is not talking about the occasional slip-up, but full-blown sexual addiction that leads to the loss of faith. Jesus' warning is that prolonged sexual objectification will lead to loss of faith in his kingdom. That we are not led to believe that a singular trip-up or a season of tripping up results in us being cast from Christ's goodness or his love, but rather that our own lust-filled choices will tempt us out of his kingdom. Jesus is not saying that I am going to be the one to cast you into hell, but rather that your choices will lead you there, that your choices will lead you into a place of a hell of your own making, a hell on earth, if you will. So Jesus's encouragement is that those who continue to fight the good fight of loving God and loving neighbor by resisting the temptation of a second look will over time find that their heart is completely renovated. And so as we always do, I want to offer a spiritual practice. I want to offer a way for this to be put in practice immediately. And so the practice this week, twofold, is to take both stock of your gaze and what influences you are letting into your heart. We have now heard Jesus's take on the second look, on its demeaning of our neighbor and the poison it is in our own heart. So my word to you is resist the second look. Sometimes we're not even aware that we are participating in the second look until someone points it out to you. When you're walking through a grocery store, when you're at your workplace, when you're driving through the street, what do you do when you notice the good looking person? Do they become kindling for the fantasy of your own making? Or do you acknowledge that they are an image bearer of our God worth being loved, valued, and respected? that the core of what Jesus is calling us to do is to hold each other in high, high regard, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And the second thing I would encourage each of us to do is to take stock of the influences that we allow in our heart. I won't name shows, movies, or entertainment sources that I think you should avoid. Because again, I recognize art is a gray area and that each of our temperaments is different. And it may be a source of immaturity on my part that disallows me from engaging in material. But do not use maturity as an excuse to not take stock of the material you readily engage with. So while the impact of certain content might not seem immediately harmful, sometimes its effects over the long haul are corrosive. So I would encourage us each to just look at the things we've watched on Netflix over the past six months and just ask the question, Lord, what, what is this leading me to? This is again, not an attempt that we become completely um, culturally unaware, that we don't know anything about what's happening or the newest shows. Cassie and I watched Dune last night. Incredible. That is not, that. that's not this. This is to say, what are the things that we are engaging with? What are the images, the scenes, the moments that are impacting our heart more than we could ever know? And have we just simply become loose and just allowing anything into our heart under the guise or maybe under this idea of freedom or maturity. But let's just reflect on that. My call is not to just cut out everything. It's a call to reflect on those things. And finally, if you're struggling with sexual temptation, talk to someone. Traditionally, this has been a taboo topic in churches. That it has been a source of great shame. There's been a significant fear of rejection, of disdain, of uh. It has been a source of taboo in our churches. And the result is, as some 57% of pastors say they struggle with pornography, that no one is exempt from the temptations of really feeding into our own sexual wounds, I, I, I almost went in a direction of saying that the church is the community for the sexually broken. That is to say that the church is a group of people who say we are all sexually broken, but that we are attempting to discipline and move our sexuality and move our hearts and move our bodies in a direction that glorifies our God. And so I, I, I want you to say, or I want you to hear, talk to someone. Cassie and I are available. Your micro church leaders are available. There are plenty of people who are ready to listen. This doesn't have to be a source of shame and contempt in your heart anymore.